It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show are now also available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Natalie Bucknell. The Global Smart Energy Summit was held in the last week of September and included some wonderful presentations. All of the presentations can be found on the Smart Energy website. Last week, we shared Audrey Zibelman's excellent presentation about the transition to a fossil fuel-free electricity supply. This week, we turn to the topic of demand response by industry and hear Simon Holmes-Accord's presentation on demand response opportunities in the aluminium sector. Simon is Senior Advisor to the Climate and Energy College at the University of Melbourne and sits on the board of the Smart Energy Council. Demand response by industry has long been part of BZE's recommended pathway to a zero carbon economy. It was incorporated in the Stationary Energy Plan and again in BZE's Renewable Energy Superpower Report. Its importance has been growing as the appreciation grows about its value in supporting grid services. Today we'll hear about recent technology that enables the aluminium industry to be part of demand response. Simon also discusses his scepticism about the effectiveness of a gas-led recovery for manufacturing. His session is chaired by award-winning journalist Marion Wilkinson. Marion has recently released a book, The Carbon Club, how a network of influential climate sceptics, politicians and business leaders fought to control Australia's climate policy. This looks like very interesting reading. Now over to Simon. I'm dialing in from the lands of the Wurundjeri people down in Victoria, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Great, thanks. Here's, here's a picture of me inside a smelter in Germany, the TreeMet smelter in Essen. This hall is uh, about 500 metres long, and on, on each side you can see the aluminium smelting pots or cells where the aluminium is extracted from the alumina. We have four smelters in Australia. One at Boyne in Queensland, Tomago in New South Wales, Portland in Victoria and Bell Bay down in Tasmania. These four smelters are huge users of energy. They comprise about 10% of the national electricity market. People often say that aluminium is congealed energy or congealed electricity. It's one of the ways we can export our energy is uh, to put it into ingots and send it overseas. Unfortunately, there's massive emissions from this sector, Ripsley, all except for Bell Bay. It's largely coal-fired. It's responsible for 6.5% of Australia's carbon emissions. But it's a very important sector. It has 3,400 direct jobs, plays a role in supporting the grid, and represents about $4 billion of Australia's exports. But unfortunately, those smelters uh, are now in the, they're in the bottom quartile of energy affordability globally. 
they're in the worst quartile for emissions, and that's starting to matter with their owners, dominant owners, Alcoa and Rio, both have committed to reducing their emissions significantly. In fact, um, Rio Tinto is committed to 30% emissions reduction, and if they were to close their Australian smelters, they would get 25 of that 30%. So it's, it's an emerging problem for them. But most of all, these smelters are losing money. Question is, can we keep them in Australia? And I'm going to explain to you, yes, we can with cheaper and greener power. But first, I need to give you a basic understanding of how smelting works. In, in the pots, there's this chemical called cryolite. Room temperature, it would look like marble, but it sits at about 960 degrees in, in the pot. Massive electric current goes through, keeping the cryolite in a molten state. Uh, and that electric current through molten cryolite pulls the aluminium out and uh, it pulls in the bottom and they actually vacuum out that molten aluminium. Now cryolite's a really nasty chemical as far as you know, it eats through almost anything when it's in its molten form and the only thing we can keep molten cryolite in is solid cryolite. Essentially that molten mineral is in uh, surrounded by a crucible of itself in solid form and maintaining that heat balance is absolutely critical. If that bowl of molten um, cryolite gets too hot that red ball there will expand and blow through the sides of the pot, destroying the pot line. But if it were to have not enough energy going in, it shrinks basically until the pot line freezes. That happened um, due to a uh, transmission line failure in Portland in 2016, late 2016, resulting in a damage bill of over 200, cost $200 million to get the smelter back on its feet and recover from that event. So it's, it's something we really, really want to avoid. So maintaining that heat balance is critical. Now, smelters can interrupt their power for short periods of time. So if there's a disturbance in the network or if uh, we have a peak power event, massive unit failure somewhere and we need to reduce demand, we can do that for a very short amount of time. Generally, two hours is about as long as they can go you know, without any further protection. And once we do so, we've got to throw a whole bunch of energy back into that pot over say uh, if it's a two-hour disruption over the next eight hours or so we'll be pumping in a lot of energy to try to get that cryolite back up to the temperature and the pot remains unstable for up to a week after and can't participate in any more of those events so in ordinarily we can't really do much modulation or changing the amount of power going in and out of the pots there's new technology however and that's why i was visiting this smelter in in germany to see it in action now in, in the photograph here, you can see a uh, set of ductwork on the side of the pots. And effectively, it's a blanket. It's a heat exchanger that goes onto the side of the pots that can hold the heat in or by drawing air through that ductwork, we can pull air off. So it works a lot like an air conditioning or climate control system for the aluminium cell. Basically, what you need to know about this technology, it allows us to safely turn the power up and down without upsetting the heat balance in that reaction. So the smelter, this TreeMet smelter that I visited, now uses their smelter. They're able to modulate the power, move it up and down. So to the grid, they look a lot like a virtual battery. They can take their power up and down 25% in an instant. They can also interrupt the pot line for short periods of time. They've had 200 interruptions over the last six years at this facility. And every time they do so, they make money out of uh, those interruptions. So we're in Australia, if Tomago ever has an outage, you'll see their managing director on the front page of the AFR the next morning complaining about how power is unreliable, whereas this smelter in Germany voluntarily adjusts their power and interrupts their line 
and makes money from it. And they, they told me that they now make more money from energy trading and, and supporting the grid than they do from the thin margins on making that electricity. Now, that flexibility is very much valued. Here's some, some analysis from Frontier Economics on what would happen if we added this smelter modulation technology to Australian smelters. And they found out that the short interruptions, and that's on the order of 20 times a year for only half an hour. So just on those very, very rare peak events, if a smelter could be interrupted safely, it would be worth $6.20 across their entire energy across, across the year. If they could flex the smelter down during those high price events, they could get another $3.20 a megawatt hour and flexing up, they could get almost a dollar a megawatt hour. So all up, this flexibility on the smelter gives them a $10.30 megawatt hour advantage and Frontier believes that will increase over time. That $10 megawatt hour ultimately can be seen as a, uh, as a tool for them to reduce their the cost of energy going into the smelter. And that $10 would go a long way to moving them from their current uncompetitive power position to one that is globally competitive. I want to show you what a, um, a, one of these extreme power price days looks like in the national electricity market. This is Victoria, the 24th and 25th of January last year, where we had record temperatures and we had a record number of large generators failed over the previous days. So energy, the energy balance, supply and demand was very tight in Victoria. And on the afternoon of 24th of January, the power price as a, a unit failed, the uh, reserve got extremely tight. Energy price jumped up to uh, $14,500. And the Portland smelter was brought offline to try to restore some of that reserve margin. Now, the next morning, a similar thing happened again. They were very tight and they asked Portland Smelter if it could come offline again. And it couldn't because the pot line was unstable from the night before. So as a result, energy prices you know, were, were sky high at 14500 And an average level in, in Victoria at the moment might be um, $60. So this is a massive increase in the cost of energy for those who are uh, exposed to spot prices. The smelter couldn't go offline. So instead... 200,000 houses in Victoria were subject to rolling blackouts at great um, political uh, cost and certainly, you know, no doubt, inconvenience to a large number of, of households. If the smelter had had the flexible technology put on it, it could have chosen to participate in that event. In a competitive market, the smelter would have bid well more than that 14,500, so it would have benefited all consumers and certainly paid Portland for the small amount of lost production. Now, one way we can get more supply into the market is using gas peakers. And I want to tell you about Snowy Hydro's Kalongra gas peaker near Wollongong, New South Wales. Uh, and it's a 675 megawatt gas generator, not that dissimilar to the one that the Energy Minister and Prime Minister talked about building another one in New South Wales. And this gives you an idea of a typical usage of a uh, open cycle gas generator. They certainly don't run all the time. In fact, in the last 12 months, this generator has only run 0.6% of its rated capacity. So you can see that down the bottom, there are those very small orange bars. Each of those will represent either some extremely hot day or cold day or failure of some kind of unit in, in the market that required energy to quickly come in. And so if you've built a billion dollar power station like this one would cost to build again, and you only get to run it for the equivalent of two days a year, you have to charge those high prices of $14,500 or more in order to recoup your investment. 
So peaking capacity, like we uh, heard announced the other day, is a very expensive way of providing that last 0.01% of reliability. Here's an example of that same generator in uh, 10th of February 2017. It came on in the morning of that day in order to compensate for, I think it was the Liddell power station dropped a unit that day. And because of the hot weather, there was a reduction in, in generation from pretty much all of the thermal fleet. After about five hours, that facility runs out of gas in its pipeline and has to stop and let the pipeline recharge. It did that, but when it was asked to come back on, it, there was not enough pressure in the pipeline and it couldn't start. And that red area there, you can see that the energy price peaked up again to $14,000 while they were trying to get that unit going. Now, if Tomago had been able to play in that market, the, the local smelter, then it would be able to provide that flexibility, you know, re reduce its demand and be able to do so at a fraction of what the gas generator could do. And also it could definitely do it, whereas the Kalonga failed to start on that day. So you can have more reliable grid with this demand response. Frontier have looked at the cost of bringing this extra capacity into the market and, and a range of technologies from battery, gas, pumped hydro, etc. And what they've found out is that adding this flexibility to industry costs a fraction of what it costs to get the same capacity through building new generation. So it shows how the industrial facilities can provide a very valuable service to the grid, one that keeps prices down and keeps reliability up, uh, but do so at a cost much cheaper than any other new piece of hardware on the, on the network. So the question is, can we provide this cheap and clean energy that keeps these smelters going? What we understand is that to be competitive on a global level, our smelters need to receive energy prices in the vicinity of 30 to 35 US dollars or up to around 40 to 50 dollars Australian. That would put them in the competitive category and they need to clean up. Our grid is about six, 700 kilograms of carbon dioxide per megawatt hour. We need to get that down to between 100 to 300 and have a pathway to get to zero over the next decade or so. Can we do this? Yes, we absolutely can. We can do so if we invest in, the limit, in, in some limited flexibility. Those short shutdowns I mentioned, no more than half an hour, no more than 20 times a year, and, and coordinated with the production requirements or production constraints of the pot lines. The ability to flex the demand up and down by up to 25% and providing support to the network, whether it's interruption for reserve management or frequency control uh, services, that flexibility provides a valuable service which can help reduce the cost and make it a competitive range. But also, if we build, build a portfolio out of renewable resources, we now know that being established for several years that the least cost portfolio of energy in Australia for a new portfolio comes from re renewables. There's no way that we could produce power at 30 to $35 US from a fossil portfolio in Australia. But with renewables, and a mechanism called ACCC's Recommendation 4, we can do that. If you've just joined us, we're listening to Simon Holmes Accord's presentation to the Global Smart Energy Summit in September. The session is chaired by journalist Marion Wilkinson. So what is Recommendation 4? In 2018, the ACCC put out a study into the electricity market into Australia and found that we had a lot of competitive issues that were maintaining high prices. And one way we could get that down is to introduce new players who were able to build new generation facilities with uh, attractive finance. They identified a market failure. 
industrial consumers will only commit to power purchase agreements for uh, the vicinity of five years or so, but developers need at least 15 years from their contracts to secure finance. They suggested a way that the government could help to resolve this market failure is to provide some underwriting. So to put a floor on the energy price for those big contracts on the order of 45 to $50 and to have that fulfill the years six to 15 of the contract. So the industry would commit to five years and the government would commit to pay no more than $45, say, for years six to 15. This is a clever scheme in that it's a relatively small liability for government and sits off budget. It's contingent. It's only called in if prices get exceptionally low. And if prices are exceptionally low, then that's fantastic. There are so many other benefits for government that the small liability, not really, that's too much of a worry. By having these longer terms, 15 to 25 years, and access to the underwriting, which is effectively improving the credit rating of the finance, we reduce dramatically the finance costs, allowing us to access those $45 prices. Another benefit of making this transition is improving the value of the product. There is an initiative, uh, the Aluminium Stewardship Initiative, with members, uh, major transport companies, uh, packaging companies, have all committed to buying green aluminium effectively. And the London Metals Exchange has announced that next year it will list green aluminium as a distinct commodity on their market. And it's projected that the green aluminium market will see 4% growth over the coming years, which for any commodity is healthy territory. So the premium that might be applied to these products is certainly one that Australia would like to be part of. Currently, only our aluminium from Bell Bay would meet the green aluminium certification. Now, aluminium is not the only load that can benefit from this kind of power purchase agreement. When we make hydrogen, it's got a large amount of flexibility. We can have similar flexibility in our desalination. Again, it's not varying all the time. It's only a few half hours a year. Modulation, a little bit up or a little bit down, helps us bring the cost down and help support the grid. And I visited a cement factory not far from that aluminium smelter that I showed you in the earlier slide. Cement factory that's developing a technology where the heat input could be powered by renewable energy and could be modulated much the same way. So what we see working for the aluminium sector to keep it competitive, accessing green markets, we can do the same with a whole lot of other industries that are very, uh, very energy intensive and currently emissions intensive. So just finishing up, if we uh, build the power portfolio that can power heavy industry, not only could we see for the aluminium sector alone, 10 gigawatts of new renewables built and all the construction and operation jobs that come with that, but we provide the low emissions and low cost energy that industry increasingly needs to maintain its markets. We retain these jobs and we retain our export income and we enable the premium products. The grid support services are very valuable, and we, of course, can reduce Australia's emissions significantly. And it applies not just aluminium, but some other energy-intensive industries. And it would provide us the ability to make Australian energy competitive again. Thank you. Thank you, Simon. And I guess one of the obvious questions in this is, are we in a race against time here? to persuade companies like Rio and Alcoa to repower before they actually, the boardrooms make the decision to pull out either because of their greenhouse footprint makes the Australian operations just too difficult 
once you accompany that with their energy prices, what sort of time frame do you think we have to persuade these companies that they can have a look at another way of doing this? Good question, Marion. So while Rio Tinto and Alcoa control these smelters, in each case, they're not the only owners. They've got significant partners, um, Maraveni and a Japanese company and Citic. Uh, and Norse Hydro are all investors in these facilities and have an interest in them continuing. But yes, the lack of competitiveness and the high emissions are a concern to each of those ownership groups. A year ago, we've been bought a small reprieve in that energy prices at the wholesale level have reduced significantly in Australia over the last 12 months. Toma goes locked into a long-term contract, so it probably won't see any benefit of that for a while. But Portland Smelter is in the process of negotiating now and the price it will be able to lock in and power for is better than it was a a year ago. So it's been been bought a little bit of time. But one thing I'd say is if we lose these smelters, they're not coming back. They're fully paid off now. Repowering them is a fairly modest cost. But if they are torn down and remediated, the capital investment to attract that industry back to Australia it would be very, very difficult to do so. So it's it's important that we start the transition now, that we bridge them across the next, you know, however long it takes us to build this portfolio. We could have them substantially repowered in two, three, four years. Yeah, that needs to be done soon. Well, I, I guess the obvious question that flows from that is, have you had interests, especially from the state governments in Victoria and New South Wales, and also from the unions, specifically the AWU on this, who are so exercised about this issue of the jobs in the smelters? Yeah, state governments and unions have been briefed on this, and there's a lot of interest in it. I'd say both Alcoa and Rio are really um, thinking about these assets, how they fit into their global asset mix. And, you know, it's really touch and go for these smelters. They're obviously very commercially sensitive discussions. Uh, The aluminium companies hold their cards very close to their chest. But yes, definitely unions and state governments are very interested in keeping these together. And especially as they learn, while it might seem like a cheap way of reducing emissions to shut a smelter and the coal generation generator that goes with it, you lose that grid support services and you obviously lose the job. So your know, decarbonisation can't come just by shutting industry down. Decarbonisation has to come by repowering. And we've got the competitive advantages in Australia that put us in really good stead for keeping these industries. We, we've heard a lot from the federal government, especially recently, about a gas recovery specifically for manufacturing industry and although it's never quite explicitly stated the implication always is that this can save the aluminium industry in particular. Uh, What do you think the government is actually saying about this and you probably have seen already today Simon that the Narrabri project major gas expansion project has been given the green light in New South Wales today, and that has been applauded, of course, by the Australian Workers' Union as a major boost to manufacturing. How much really can it help the smelter at Tomago, for example, given the timeframe we've got? Well, in any timeframe, gas can't help Tomago. Gas would need to get down to around $2 a gigajoule to be competitive for a smelter. For instance, Narrabi gas is somewhere between $6 and $8 to extract. There's gas on Australia's east coast is relatively expensive. Certainly our coal seam gas is by international standards expensive gas. 
So we're never going to see a significant part of industry powered by gas. Manufacturing sector only makes up about 8% of our gas demand. This gas-fired recovery concept, I don't see it playing out. You saw that gas generator I showed you, Colongro. It uses hardly any gas at all for peaking. So building another generator wouldn't do anything for gas demand. Really, it's this gas noise we're hearing at the moment is about uh, industry trying to get pipelines subsidised, and we'll see that gas mostly go offshore if those pipelines go ahead. You've been listening to Simon Holmes-Accord and Marion Wilkinson presenting at the Global Smart Energy Summit. All recordings from the summit are now available at www.smartenergy.org.au. Before we wrap up, I'd like to share with you some comments made by Mark Butler, Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy, during his presentation at the summit. His statement beautifully sums up the current context for these changes to our energy system and industry. I mean, the thing is, as all of you know, there is a race underway around the world. There's a race to deal with the climate emergency. There's also a race to harness all of the jobs and the investment opportunity that go along with the transformation of the global economy, a transformation to cleaner energy systems, to clean transport systems, and to cleaner ways of manufacturing those core manufactured products like steel and aluminium, chemicals and cement. And Australia should be leading this race with the extraordinary renewable energy resources that Nikki just took us through, uh, with the scientists that have consistently led in innovation in this area, with businesses ready to invest, uh, and with workers who have the skills to do this. Isn't that just spot on? Where is the vision and ambition for our country to participate in this race against climate change and the race to capitalise on all the opportunities of the decarbonisation of the global economy? I'll leave you to ponder that until next week. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and currently in the homes of the presenters and syndicated around Australia on the community radio network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on that donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Am I gonna die? Am I gonna live? Am I gonna sit on the edge of it? Am I gonna fall? Am I gonna fight? Am I gonna watch from the outside? Sometimes I wake from the deepest sleep Oh, and I feel tomorrow in me Like I don't wanna let the hand of yesterday hold me back But everything I see, everything I watch Makes me wanna hold my ears till it stops Makes me wanna run, makes me wanna hide Makes me wanna set this house alight Oh, but I remember my mother's voice Telling me that every day is a choice For where there's good, there's bad But my child, you always can be
be the difference.